Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Center Trail Podcast. I'm Tara. And I'm John. And we're really happy to be with you. We're happy to be back. Uh, it's taking us a little while to get get back into the groove mm-hmm. of a semester. We have slacked, perhaps. <sighs> a little. Well, we've slacked in this particular aspect of our professional <laughs> lives. It's the rest of our professional lives taking a lot of time, including um, potential changes next year to our program, which we will we can share more about in the future. Yeah, 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 but we have um we have been running a search in our mm-hmm. program um for uh, a new colleague, and so we've had lots of um lots of interviews and discussions. Um, we have all kinds of cool things going on on campus. We've had lots of students to meet with. Um, mm-hmm. so we've been busy people. Very very busy. Yes, and our oh. spouses are sick of us being gone in the evenings. It's funny that, isn't it? Because they are. Yes. I don't always feel that I'm that welcome. <laughs> it's like an elastic band type thing that like, I'm still annoyed at you that you were gone for so long. Um, but yeah, what people listening with small kids will understand is like, yeah, I get what you're saying. People who don't have small kids, one day you might know what we're Someday. Yeah. Uh, but we're really excited uh, about our spring semester. We have a new Center Trail intern, Colleen Coyle, um, who has put up a nice introduction on the blog and we hope that you'll check it out. Um, and we'll be hearing lots of cool stuff from her this mm-hmm. term. She has cool ideas. She once wrote a very good research paper for me on pirates. That's, <laughs> that lets you know something about Colleen. Pirates cool are, I feel like pirates are one of the the coolest yet hardest undergraduate papers to write. They are, I was thinking white whale, but it's not the correct term. Pirates, the, the pirates of the Caribbean are a topic that many, many students take on. And, uh, a rather smaller number of students succeed with because it's, it's very hard. It's it's, a, it's actually it's actually a much tougher topic than you think, and you get super distracted by like what seems like the fun stuff, and it just and it just gets difficult. It does. It is. It's one of those topics I routinely tell students. Oh, okay, but it's going to be harder than you think it's going to be. Yeah, exactly. Um, so we are each teaching a survey class mm-hmm. and an upper level class this term. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll have cool things throughout the term to talk to you about. Um, I'm teaching my upper level class on American religious history. You are teaching an upper level class on the age of the samurai, which we're going to talk about mm-hmm. in just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we are looking forward to getting back to our regularly scheduled weekly-ish um, conversations. Mm-hmm. <laughs> let's say weekly. Let's be <laughs> let's be ambitious. Yeah, this is the difference between you and I. You are always ambitious, and I am always <laughs> realistic. <cautious>. Realistic. <laughs> That's the word. <laughs> Uh, but we will not bore you with the minutia of a professor's <laughs> life any longer than uh, we can get away with. Um, so this is not going to be a terribly long podcast this week. We're going to jump right into it. Mm-hmm. I'm curious mm-hmm. about your class on the Age of the Samurai because mm-hmm. I admit to being uh, a an American of a particular age and having some very serious crouching tiger, hidden dragon visions <laughs> of your class. <laughs> yes. So... Um, everyone loves the samurai. This is this is actually, although I can't actually take the credit for this because it was a complete fluke, um, it's an ingenious class to teach at the undergraduate level <laughs> because it is always popular and people always want to learn about the samurai. And, and, and that, I should have known that. They're very popular in the West. They're also very popular in Japan. And this class, in all honesty, was kind of built as a Japan class that isn't modern Japan. And, and modern Japan, 
it depends who you talk to, I suppose. But kind of for the purposes of my teaching, I would typically start a modern Japan class in like the 1850s. Mm-hmm. Um, I could start it earlier, but I, I started in the 1850s because a lot of things happened that I want to cover. And so I said, well, I want to do something, you know, before the 1850s. <laughs> that, was the, that was the genesis. Um, and, you know, early modern Japan or changing power structures in early modern Japan or, um, <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know, like gender in the urban center in early modern Japan. You know, these are not um, classes that undergraduates take in huge numbers and they, they kind of turn people off. And so I thought, well, let's call it Age of the Samurai. And then because, you know, uh, words do matter, I thought, well, I actually better make it about the samurai. Um, <laughs> but it does kind of work uh, because what basically happens is Oh, dear. Uh, a short version of the story is that um, in the 1870s, the samurai ceased to be an officially sanctioned, really legislatively supported class. So like famously, in what's called the Edo period from 1600 to 1868, a samurai can kill a commoner and theoretically nothing will happen to him. Legally speaking, uh, the samurai has massive, massive um, uh, advantages over commoners in particular. Um he has an enormously prestigious role in society that is very much underpinned by all kinds of actual, like, formal power structures. And in the 1870s, as part of a wide-ranging modernization program, all of that was taken away. All of the formal stuff was just taken away. Um, and there is a samurai rebellion which fails. Uh, this is the Tom Cruise movie, is the topic of this, <laughs> uh, that people are familiar with, The Last Samurai. Um, and they're defeated by a national Japanese army which had been built very much deliberately modeled after the British and the German military forces with some American advisors thrown in. Um, the Japanese also built a navy modeled after the British. They built a coal mining industry. They built, they just, it's an astonishing period in history. And one of the things that happens is that you have a lot of uh, young and young-ish Japanese modernizers who really get heavily invested in the idea of modernization. So a big question in my modern Japan class, we'll talk about next year, is a, uh, when does modernization equal westernization, or mm-hmm. should it? You know, um, and there were a lot of uh, Japanese modernizers who they just came to see the samurai as a living, walking, talking symbol of everything they didn't want Japan to be anymore. Right, um, and they just rejected them. And so there's a very famous um, scholar named Fukuzawa Yukichi who actually was a samurai. He came from a samurai family and just completely rejected the identity and. And he wrote pretty nasty things about samurai and just mocked them. And he just he just thought they were terrible. And so there's this very interesting situation where they're just kind of removed. And part of the reason that happens is because they had become completely intertwined with whatever life in Japan before 1868 is. So mm-hmm. classification in Japan, Japanese history is challenging, especially if you try and kind of put it to so-called Western models, such as classical, medieval, early modern, right. modern. Um, which is further complicated because Japanese scholars in the late 19th century tried to do exactly that. <laughs> um, a lot of people, a lot of people wanted to write off the uh, the Edo period, the 1600-1868 period, as a feudal period. Mm-hmm. I'm doing quotation marks, people listening. <laughs> uh, uh, and so there's all these like negative connotations, and so the samurai were inseparable from those ideas. And then, depending on how you look at it, there's there's no, I don't know that there's a consensus of when the samurai first show up, but they kind of they become majorly invested in the political structure in the 1100s. So the class ends up being a few, a couple of days on Japan until 1150, and then then we really get going. And the whole class is kind of 1100s to 1800s, and that's what we do. I need to ask a yes. stupid question. There is no such thing. 
No, we might in this podcast <laughs> even call it the question. Usually, you set me up. Yeah, uh, like who was Thomas Jefferson yeah. or something. Like. I'm going to ask an equivalent of that, <laughs> yeah. which is okay. I get the samurai are a class. Mm-hmm. I can sort of understand mm-hmm. that uh, in my like little American historian brain because mm-hmm. at one point I really liked other things besides American history. <laughs> um, so you know, I get like there's aristocrats and you know, things like that. But mm-hmm. what exactly is a samurai? Okay, that's a very good question. Um, in Japanese, they're usually usually called bushi which translates more directly as warrior. Okay. So primarily they are theoretically warriors. Mm-hmm. Um, samurai means it means to serve someone. And so the, not, the, the concept of service is very important here. Um, the concept of serving your immediate master is hugely important. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by extension, the importance of serving the emperor is very important. So the most powerful and most famous samurai at any given time for a long time is the shogun. And the shogun is kind of, he's, you know, the way we talk about this in class, they call it dual governance in Japanese history, but the emperor has just like unlimited symbolic power. Like, mm-hmm. like nobody could even imagine going against the emperor ever. If he, if he says he wants to have something to happen, it has to happen and so on and so on. But in practice, the person who's actually making all the policy and doing all the work, especially after 1600, is this guy called the shogun. Mm-hmm. And he's a samurai. So he has this like service relationship with the emperor and, which by extension is service to the nation. And as you go down kind of the ladder through all the different kind of samurai, there's lots and lots of different kind of hierarchies of samurai. They all theoretically have this service to their lord. So the thing about it is it changes radically. So early on, they're basically professional warrior groups. So there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of conflict in Japan, a lot of contestation over resources and things like that. And you have these groups of people who emerge and effectively pool their resources to buy horses, um, armor, bows and arrows in particular, and then mm-hmm. the training to to use all that stuff. Um, that's kind of the origin. And at that particular time, it's pretty open. They don't have family names yet because very few people in Japan do have family names. Only the super powerful people have those, the clans. Over time, the samurai will become clans. Over time, the samurai will become hereditary. So the same process sees a transition away from there being a relatively large number of female samurai. They're never mm-hmm. really, they're never half or anything like that but there's quite a large number of them, to there being virtually none. There are women of samurai families in the 1700s, but there's right. very, very, very few women who are you know, fighting samurai or whatever. Um, and they are fighters. And so one of the reasons they take over in the 12th century is that the previous powers are, you know, um, they're civil, civic, civically minded and, and they're, they're ruling through etiquette. And mm-hmm. one of the most powerful clans, the Fujiwara, effectively is powerful because they successfully marry into the imperial family consistently and things mm-hmm. like that. Whereas the samurai kill people and are actually <laughs> violent. And, and so they, they kind of transition from this role of the bodyguard of the emperor into political actors in their own right in the 12th century. And so what happens then is there's this huge war in the 1180s which ends up becoming the center of this epic called Tale de Heiko, one of the most famous epics in Japanese history, which effectively casts the goody and the baddie in that story are both <laughs> samurai. And then as you go through, there's this, there's this very long evolution, you see. So um, the warriors get more and more involved in administration. Mm-hmm. They get more and more involved in management of the right to own land or at least to manage land. Later on, it becomes owning land. And as the state very, very slowly and in fits and starts becomes more pervasive in society, mm-hmm. they they kind of go along with that. And there's one more thing. 
after the, the, the country is unified in 1600 after over a century of civil wars. Mm-hmm. There is a Christian rebellion in the 1630s. Uh-huh. That's the last, that's the last, you know, shot fired, literally and figuratively. Well, figuratively anyway, um, in that entire period. So from the 1630s to the 1850s, the samurai don't have any actual fighting to do. Right. So the samurai walking around in the 1850s have never seen battle, nor have their fathers, or maybe even their grandfathers. But their their identity is completely based on being warriors. And so you have all these manuals that are very, very popular, like the um, the Code of the Bushido, the Code of the Warrior, the Code of the Samurai, the Code of the Warrior, Hagakure, these very, very famous texts, most of which begin with the line. The very first line in the whole book is, the way of the samurai is death. Mm-hmm. And the whole book is kind of boring manuals. Like, this is how you mount your horse and this is how you do what your master wants you to do and this is how suicide should happen and like, you know, how to be a samurai kind of thing. But they're they're performing this role that doesn't yeah. even exist anymore right. and that retroactively gets projected backwards so that, for example, in the 1880s when people are reacting against what the samurai were, they have this they have this thing that humans are doing, right? Which is they're taking their idea of what everyone said they were for the previous century and saying that's what they always were but they were a constantly shifting group and constantly in flux. So I'm thinking here then for a minute. Um, so you said 1860... 1868 is the year that basically these three men from the southwest of Japan, it's basically a coup actually, but they don't call it that. They, mm-hmm. like, it's called the Meiji Restoration. So they theoretically save the emperor from his incompetent government is what happens. And there, and two of the three guys are extremely forward-thinking, and they want a British-style navy and a British-style industrial capacity. Everything. The third guy is actually the man that the Tom Cruise movie is based on. He's this <laughs> extremely conservative. He actually had done it. He actually believed the cover story. Like he really, you know, he was like, "We're doing this for the emperor." Um, so, so after eighteen sixty-eight, there's sweeping. Like they have a parliament within fifteen or twenty years. There's a sweeping changes to the society after that. And. Again, in my incredibly mm-hmm. bad Asian history, <laughs> am I correct that it's after that that they that Japan starts to become more and more interested in being a kind of powerful figure in kind of the larger Asian world? Um, yeah, I mean they invade Korea in the 1590s. Right. Um, there is there's definitely kind of rivalries there with China and Korea, although they have these very kind of complex relationships, those two countries that are dominated by trade. The very short, broad stroke answer, so beware listeners, this is a bit of a generalization, <laughs> is that it's the 1870s, right? So right. who are you going to, even though the Americans are the ones who open up Japan in the 1850s, right. you know, they send, they basically send gunships into Tokyo Bay and force the Japanese economy to open up to the Americans. Uh, the most powerful country in the world is the Britain. British Empire. Yeah. And so that's that's who they copy. And so they copy, uh, and there's also a lot of German emulation as well. So for certain people in the Japanese intellectual elite, the emulation of British industry and everything else continues on into the emulation of basically the British kind of imperial mission, which itself has arguably become even more ideological at that particular time and is more sweeping, right. the scramble for Africa and everything else. For example, always students always find this fascinating, social Darwinism, mm-hmm. which is this idea by this guy Herbert Spencer, who he's the one who coined, I know you know all this, Tara. Uh, he's, he's, <laughs> he's the one who coined survival of the fittest. 
Um, not Darwin. Not himself. Darwin himself, and basically argues that um, this 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 Darwinian concept can be applied to societies. Um, and it, it's a ba- it's basically a long and complicated and very convenient explanation for why white people are superior to people who aren't white. Um, this idea gets a lot of traction among certain Japanese and Chinese intellectuals, mm-hmm. and the reason the, their reasoning is they see it not so much as a fait, fait accompli that white people are better than us. They see it as oh, okay, this is a contest, and we can beat them. Uh, the yellow race can surpass the white race. And that language continues and continues and continues. Like, by the time you get to the 1930s in World War II, some of the propaganda is really astonishing. Like, it's, it's very, very racially centric and, and pro, pro-yellow race. And this is kind of the way they're using the language. It's the best way to translate it into English. It's, right. it's really interesting. So is some of the rejection, then, of the samurai about rejecting what they come to see in the late 19th century as, like, a more parochial backwards world yeah. that, pe- that they them you know that their nation was living in right exactly so like you know in 1853 you know commodore perry sails into uh, tokyo bay with a letter from president fillmore and famously says you know would you like to take this letter and they say no thank you so he points his very very large guns <laughs> at these houses and they say okay and he comes back a year later and 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 the, the harris treaty is negotiated which was this just you know unfair treaty. It's a very common mm-hmm. thing in the imperialist age, right? Gumbo diplomacy, it's called. And what's really interesting, and at that particular time, um, you had the shogun, it was still in effect, and and uh, uh, the rice the rice market collapses, rice prices go through mm-hmm. the floor, the silk market has massive disruption. Basically, the Japanese economy is, in, is hugely disrupted, and people are taken to the street, and people feel this intense sense of humiliation um but what's interesting is they they don't they don't throw the emperor out they don't reject the emperor well who they do reject is they reject the shogun and so this becomes the rationale for the guys in 1868 who come and replace the shogun right and 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 with that particularly some of the intellectual voices such as fukuzawa these are guys who basically kind of for them the samurai is completely inseparable from a past that has to be radically wiped and like fukuzawa was a guy who had tried to learn Dutch as a boy because the Dutch were the major right. foreign presence. Then he switched to learning English. And he was really, like a lot of these westernizing reformers, he was quite iconoclastic, you know. Like he was just kind of, no, it's fine. We'll, we'll get rid of it. Like he right. starts wearing western suits. He gets his hair cut and he get, he starts trimming his facial hair the same way a western man would do. Mm-hmm. And he just he just embraces a new way of thinking about being Japanese. And he just, he doesn't see, he just, he does not see in any way the samurai can be compatible with this new system. On top of that, um, you have the inclusion of a new police force in Tokyo and other Japanese cities modeled after the Metropolitan Police Force in London, uh, as all modern police forces mm-hmm. basically were. You have um, a modern standing army, civil servants, as I tell my students, anyone from someone who settled a legal case to the 1860s version of the person at the DMV. Right? Um <laughs> And, 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 and what you have, of course, the state is reaching further into society than ever before, but they're also doing the kind of jobs the samurai had done, right. clerical jobs and things like that. So, for example, a lot of samurai, on the other side of it, a lot of samurai refuse to accept the idea that some commoner is going to have the same right. job as them. Yeah. Like, policeman was a particularly uh, touchy subject um, because most of the policemen were, were commoners, and the samurai had massive, massive problems with this. Some of the samurai... Also, some of the wealthier samurai basically transitioned over. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the more 
it had been going on for about 100 years at this point, but some of the samurai were under pretty severe fiscal duress. Right. Because their culture didn't really celebrate trade or commercials the way that our culture does. And so I always, I love telling my students this example. Um, you know, you're at a point in the 1840s where a very, you know, if you're a merchant and I'm the wealthy samurai and you lend me money because I need money to go and see the theater and all these things samurai are supposed to be doing. There's right. a lot of kind of keep up with the Joneses, public perception you have to keep doing. It's very difficult for you to ask me for my, your money back. Like I could literally, yeah. I could literally say, <laughs> oh my God, you know, I'm embarrassed for both of us. You didn't bring that up. I mean... <laughs> Oh my God! I often borrow money from somebody else, and there's nothing you could really do. But if I, and wherever that line is, if I was below the line, however, you would feel comfortable asking for the money back, and now you are humiliating me. Right. And so there's this huge amount of bitterness on the samurai side as well. So uh, especially on those poorer samurai and the less connected samurai who had kind of been doing the clerical work, like the tax collecting and mm-hmm. writing of contracts and things like that. So so bringing commoners into this was just for the, it was like a step too far, you know. I'm going to keep this in mind the next time one of us runs to, to Speedway for a, a soda. <laughs> oh, how could you even bring this up that I owe you $2? I know. <laughs> <laughs> really, really, you're letting us both down. You know. <laughs> and it's, it's interesting because, of course, our society is so commercially focused. Because the danger, as you know, Tara, with this in history is, but it's not, it's not that money wasn't important at all. That's the other danger right. the students have. Right? Yeah. We, we need to be, it's, it's very hard to get this right. But, but in, in, kind of, in a society where how things are portrayed and where individual prestige is so important, if you're prestigious enough, you can pull stuff like that off. I mean, yeah. what the merchant family is trying to do, of course, is they're trying to get their kids into the right... Yeah. Get their kids the right tutors. And there's that's another thing this new age does. It allows this incredibly powerful merchant class. It gives them legitimacy they, they, they were struggling to get in the previous system. Well, now I totally want to come and sit in on your class. <laughs> I'm not, but I want to. <laughs> Well, that's what we'll do for the next 10 weeks of the semester. So, John, this week, could you could you cover the same yeah. Goku period for us? I will say very quickly, uh, God bless my students. They were expecting blood and gore, and um, they've been dealing with like uh, the politics of power structures for two weeks. Uh, but they're hanging in there with me. That I feel like so often that is the case. Yeah. Where even if the title hasn't been intentionally made sexy, right. um, they're still, they're like, wait... You mean things besides wars happened in the early American Republic? <laughs> yes. I will say, though, next week, I was saying this earlier to you before we recorded, um, next week we're doing the classic tale, the tale of the Heiko, and um, one of the days is you get to choose your favorite suicide and read it out, because <laughs> there's, there's a lot of important suicides in the tale. My favorite one is the guy who jumps off his horse and when hitting the ground decapitates himself. How do you do that? Um, uh, he actually he actually jumps off his horse onto the ground and swallows his own sword, literally. Um, there's another guy who's trapped under his horse and supposedly cuts his own head off with his sword. Um, then I there, don't know if I think that's physically possible. Uh, yeah, they say it might have been because the swords were really sharp, but I yeah. also don't think it's yeah. physically possible. And then there's the really nice one, the really famous one, which is Atsune, which is this, he's this young warrior and the older warrior um, kills him with tears in his eyes as the to save him from a dishonorable death from the guys coming over the hill. It's one of the most famous moments in Japanese literature. Wow. Um, so I'm curious to talk to them about that. That's, that will be mm. interesting. Yeah. An interesting discussion <laughs> right there. <laughs> All right. Well, we both are going to have students waiting for us because that's just the life that we lead. Sarah, and if like you're it. listening, I'm sorry. <laughs> that's my student who's waiting right now, sitting out there wondering why I'm talking in here. 
Um, but we, we're looking forward to being back and we have all kinds of neat things to tell you about. And we've got topics that we're looking forward to discussing. Um, and we hope that you will join us here for the rest of the spring. Yeah. Thanks for coming back with us. Thanks. We'll see you next time. Well, we won't see you. (laughs) I'm sorry. Is this supposed to be done now? Okay. We'll hear you next time. Bye. Bye. (laughs)